Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and researcher of Japanese war heritage. As Museums Across Japan celebrates the 1,400th anniversary of the death of Prince Shotoku Taishi, the legendary figure who brought Buddhism to Japan, the Sainsbury Institute, together with the Sainsbury Center for Visual Arts at the University of East Anglia, is currently collaborating with major universities and museums in Japan to create a special exhibit commemorating the event. This Shotoku intervention will display the Sainsbury Center's collection of Japanese Buddhist and Shinto artifacts centered around a rare 13th century Kamakura period statue of a female Shinto deity. To better explain the significance of Shotoku Taishi, Beyond Japan will be exploring over three episodes the religious, political, and historical contexts of this dynamic period of East Asian history. We hope you enjoy our Shotoku miniseries. Our third and final Shotoku interviewee is Brian Lowe, Assistant Professor of Religion at Princeton University, with whom I'll be getting to grips with the tricky task of reading history from mythology in such ancient texts as Japan's Kojiki, or An Account of Ancient Matters, written in 711, and Nihon Shoki, or Japanese Chronicles, written in 720. Brian begins by exploring why texts were written in this time, and how some texts, like Buddhist sutras, were written and read for rituals rather than sharing information, yet we can still glean much about life in those times from the contexts in which they were written. In taking this approach, we try to make sense of legendary figures such as Prince Shotoku Taishi, seeing what we can learn about the man the legend is based upon, and what the legends themselves tell us. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, Brian. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Yeah, so my expertise is in Japanese Buddhism, especially what I call the ancient period or people call the early period. And by this, I mean the 7th through ninth centuries, roughly. I have broader interest beyond that in ritual and manuscript cultures, as well as the relationship between religion and politics. So like, how did I get interested in these things? It's kind of a meandering story, and I could, I could probably talk for hours, but it's a combination of, of <laughs> things. When I was a kid, I, I saw the movie Karate Kid and Cobra Kai, the Netflix series, is now a guilty pleasure. And that inspired me to start studying Japanese. I've always liked really old things. So in high school, I kind of opted for the ancient history track as opposed to the modern history track. And when I was a teenager, I got really into like Buddhism, like beat Buddhism of Jack Kerouac and those people. And then I kind of found myself in my early 20s, not knowing what I want to do with my life, speaking Japanese, liking school, wanting to learn more about Buddhism and old things. And kind of here I am. So that's kind of the autobiographical version. The, the more intellectual version is my research interests, I think, emerged in some ways out of the dissatisfaction with normative claims in Buddhist studies about what was real Buddhism and when it emerged. And I encountered this as an undergraduate with this movement called critical Buddhism that was basically trying to dismiss a lot of forms of Japanese Buddhism as inauthentic. And so put really briefly, there are a lot of sectarian narratives that see various forms of Buddhism as corrupt. And so I was kind of inspired in part to study one of the eras that was seen as the most corrupt. So Buddhism in the ancient periods usually been understood under this rubric of, of state Buddhism, that the Buddhism in this period was controlled by the state, the state was using Buddhism, promoting it for its own purposes, and that there's really not much else there. And I was kind of interested, I, I assumed like there must be more to it than that. And I also kind of was, was interested in studying this era that had been kind of dismissed. And I, I felt like there's probably an opening there. And it's kind of, I think, in some ways surprising that it's, it's been dismissed because 
you know, it's the earliest periods of Buddhism in Japan. So, so Buddhism enters Japan sometime in the sixth century. There are different dates, 538, 552. And very little attention had been given to these kind of first few hundred years of Buddhism in Japan, which is really surprising. So I've been trying to kind of reimagine the origins of Buddhism in Japan in my research. That's really interesting, the idea of a corrupt Buddhism. Is that a more recent argument or people were debating that at the time? Yeah, that's a, a good question. So there have always been internal critiques of Buddhism, of referring to things as, as corruption. And that's, you know, it's not surprisingly kind of polemical, right? Like all, all those guys, their Buddhism is garbage, but my Buddhism is, is the real one. I mean, we see that with medieval <laughs> thinkers like Nichiren or someone like that. But the narrative of the 8th century Buddhism, the state Buddhism, is something that really emerged beginning, I argue, um, I have an article on this, but I argue in the 19th century and continuing into the 20th century, when modern Buddhists in Japan were facing persecution, um, direct persecution, and then also kind of broader forces of modernization that required them to rethink what should Buddhism be. And for some Buddhists, they look back to the Nara period to the 8th century, and they said, hey, this is a good model of what Buddhism should look like. Like Buddhism and the state were well connected. The state supported Buddhism. Like, why don't we do this? And then we had others who were like, no, no, no. Religion and politics must be separated. Uh, of course, this is a modern idea. And I would encourage the work of Julian Thomas and Jason Josephson Storm on this topic, but that religion and politics must be separated. And therefore the Nara period is bad. And it's something we need to reject. So I think the particular narrative that really treated kind of the early periods of Buddhism as corrupt emerged in the modern period. The other piece of that, puzzle is that the narratives for what was authentic Buddhism were, were decidedly sectarian. So the religious organizations in Japan that were the most dominant in the 19th and 20th centuries, and particularly like the Jodo Shinshu, the true Pure Land sect, those schools wanted to argue that their founders in the Kamakura period, in the medieval period, brought Buddhism to the populace for the first time. So they had a sectarian narrative to argue that the real Buddhism began with us. So everything else before then had to have been corrupt or their narrative doesn't really work. That sounds fascinating, and we should probably do another episode about corrupt Buddhism. Um, but bring back to the focus of this episode on myth and history. As your area of expertise is the study of early Buddhist texts, could you begin by explaining to us how and why a text from this period was written and who the intended reader would have been? Yeah, so let me just first say that there are lots of different kinds of Buddhist texts, right? So the, the word Buddhist text could mean anything from calligraphy practice to donor records to narratives, right? Like stories to shipping labels. And those are all to some extent Buddhist texts and they all would be produced differently for different reasons and would require kind of a long answer. But let me limit myself to Buddhist scriptures. Um, so texts that are kind of defined as being in the Buddhist canon, mostly sutras, monastic rules, and various um, philosophical and kind of commentarial texts because those tended to be copied in, in very particular ways. And, you know, your question asked, like, who the intended reader would be. And I think the first thing we actually have to kind of do away with is our basic idea of, of, of what a text is, and that is even intended to be read in a, in a traditional way or in the way that we associate reading text with today. So when we read a book today, we, we tend to prioritize the semantic value, right? We read a book to know what the words mean, what the author is trying to tell us, um, what the stories are communicating. Buddhist texts, of course, were read for this purpose. I do want to really stress this. Scholars studied and commented on Buddhist texts. Buddhist ideas were, were widespread. But I think reading texts this way and gaining knowledge through texts this way was actually probably much less common than we might think. And it's not the only reason texts were produced. So this is a long-winded explanation to say we shouldn't necessarily assume that readers are actually reading texts to get meaning, which then kind of 
undermines the whole question of like, who are the intended readers? So what were people doing with texts? Reading and writing of texts was most commonly, I would argue, a devotional and ritual act. And this is an old Buddhist idea. It goes back certainly to, to South Asia, which is that the production of Buddhist texts itself was virtuous. So if you copy a Buddhist text, or even more commonly, actually, in my period, at least, you hire someone else to copy a text for you, that's viewed as a pious or virtuous act that generates something known as merit. And this merit could be used for all sorts of purposes. So if you were worried that, like, you know, you had a great aunt, and she wasn't really a nice lady, she was kind of stingy, and she might be suffering in a bad birth in her next life, be like that aunt. You, you could copy a sutra on her behalf and donate the merit to her so she'll be saved from her suffering. Um, to use a familiar example right now, for this is a good 2021 example, if there were an epidemic, you could copy a Buddhist text and use that merit to help stop the epidemic. And so when texts were read, they were usually vocalized aloud, chanted in a ceremony. And in this case, I think it's really important to stress that the audience might not or probably often did not understand the meaning. So the texts were written in classical Chinese. So it sounds very, very different than the vernacular Japanese. The syntax is different. The vocabulary is different. And if, for example, you go to a funeral in Japan today, it's largely the same. So people recite scripture. But if you were to ask them after, what, what did you just recite? They'd say, I don't know. I, you know. I recognize this word or that word, but I don't actually know what I was reciting. So this is really, really common. Instead, the spectacle of reading is important, right? The sound of the voice, the smell of the incense, the power of the Buddhist image. And so reading then is a, is a ritual and devotional act and not necessarily a semantic act. I think I can stop there. There's more I could say about this. But. <laughs> Sure. So it's not so much for the purpose of transmitting knowledge, as we understand text to be useful today, but ritual practice then, I see. Okay. It seems to be a trend when looking at ancient history that you have to do away with any sort of modern understanding of the most basic concepts of things like religion or reading. It's, uh, it seems like a wholly other world to be, to be studying. So in your 2011 article, Texts and Textures of Early Japanese Buddhism, you claim that Buddhist practitioners wrote texts not only as sources of knowledge, but also as, and you're going to have to check my pronunciation here, non-hermeneutic textual practices, which you describe as, quote, acts related to a text that do not pertain to understanding the semantic value of the written words on the page, end quote. What can historians today gain from reading these non-hermeneutic texts in understanding the past? Yeah, it's a terrible term to say, huh? It's, it's, <laughs> I, I should also just con congratulate you, Oliver, for finding that article of mine. It's the first article I, I ever published. I published it, I was a graduate student, and I saw that there was a prize for using Princeton archival materials. And I knew Princeton had some old Buddhist manuscripts, and I was poor with two kids and needed money. So I, uh, so I, I did some <laughs> research and won the prize. And, um, so congratulations on finding that. That's definitely the, the first thing I ever wrote. Let me say that the language of, of non-hermeneutic isn't my own. So I, I do want to try to credit Fabio Rambelli in his book, Buddhist Materiality. Um, he coined that term. As far as I know, he's, he's the person that really expanded on that term the most. So I'm really indebted to his work there. I should also just briefly say, and I've, I've stressed this before, but I, I do want to stress that we shouldn't take the term non-hermeneutic too far. Because again, people did read texts for semantic value too, alongside these ritual things. And in some ways, I have an argument that the devotional activities of texts really created a large number of Buddhist texts that enabled scholasticism in Japan in some ways. So the, the two are intertwined. And moreover, perhaps more importantly, the content does matter. So people choose specific texts for specific purposes. And so sometimes they're like, okay, this text 
is really, really perfect for the particular act I want to pray for. And so the content does matter. So it's not exclusively non-hermeneutic. I, I do want to um, stress that. But to try to kind of explain what I mean by, by non-hermeneutic in really concrete terms, I think it's useful to kind of think about how I wrote my own book and compare that with how somebody would have written a Buddhist text in 8th century Japan. So the way I wrote my own book is, you know, I might have had a glass of wine the night before after a tired day. I kind of wake up, stumble down the stairs, put on some, some sweatpants. I think COVID has taught us all that elastics are, are great. Um, I might have a cup of tea, maybe, maybe eat some bacon and eggs, and then kind of start writing. There are a lot of things I don't do, right? I don't wear special clothes. I don't avoid eating meat, um, avoid drinking alcohol, avoid sexual intercourse. Writing is pretty much like a part of my everyday mundane life. But copying a Buddhist text, both as it was kind of idealized and put into practice, was really different from what I just described. And so I titled my book from 2017, Ritualized Writing. And what I mean by that is the way people wrote Buddhist scriptures was often set apart from other actions. So scribes would commonly perform ablutions or take some form of a bath before copying. They wore special garments that were known as joy. They avoided meat. They avoided contact with death. We actually have these really interesting records of people sending requests for like time off from work. Like, oh, I can't go to work today because I've been in contact with death. I need to, you know, get rid of the pollution and then I'll come back to work. So in short, they, they upheld purity. We even have like there's some really interesting stories from China that were also known in Japan where people would actually like drill a hole through the wall and use a bamboo pipe to breathe as like an exhaust pipe out of the hall so that they wouldn't <laughs> defile the, the Buddhist sutras with their breath. Now, I don't know if people actually did that, but we do have records and images of people wearing masks while they copied sutras. And so we have this whole discourse of, of purity, right? That when you copy a text, it's not just about getting the meaning of the words right, although that was important too. These texts would have been proofread two or three times. But in addition to getting the words right, you also had to prepare your body because your body is intimately connected to the text you are producing. So I think on for one, I mean, this is just kind of neat, right? Like, it's just like, that's really cool. And that's a completely different way of thinking about text than we do. But I'd also want to kind of point out that I think this matters for lots of different reasons. One is it really reminds us that we need to rethink how we talk about text. So you, in the preface to this question, we're talking about the differences between modern and pre-modern, how we have to do it with our terms. And I would say yes and no. So I think one of the things that's really useful about studying pre-modern materials is they sometimes can make us also aware of the way we use text in our lives today too, right? So when a president mm -hmm. in the United States takes office, they put their hand on a Bible and they often choose a very particular Bible with some sort of historical or personal connection, right? And so the way that we use text today are also not always purely for the semantic value as well. So I think this case study really makes us kind of rethink text and remember that they're not just things to be read, but they have performative, symbolic, um, ritual aspects to them. The other thing is, is that this helps us kind of move beyond thinking about the religion of literate and elites. So if you, if you can interact with a Buddhist text without having to be able to read it, that also means that Buddhism could be widely practiced. And in fact, one of the things I try to document in my book is that we have like stories about people mixing ink. So that's how you could participate, right? We have cases where a whole village will pool whatever resources they have together to sponsor a project. And so for historians of Japan, I think it really lets us kind of start to get access into non-elite religions um, as well. I see. So just for clarity's sake, texts written in this time, would they be documenting the events of what is going on, of past figures? Is it factual? 
what's the content like? Yeah, that's a great question. So the way I first got into this project was looking at narratives. So there are lots of stories of fictional stories about exemplary sutra copyists, right? So this sutra copyist did a really good job and the box for the sutra, which had been made too small, grew miraculously so the sutra could fit in it. So we have a lot of stories like this. Or on the other hand, we have like, they hired this guy with really good calligraphy to copy the title, but you know, he, he ate meat the day before and then there was a fire and the title burned. The rest of the sutra was fine, but the title burned. So we have a lot of fiction that really promoted this idea. But fortunately for Japan and elsewhere as well in East Asia, but especially for Japan, we have really, really good documentation that people actually carried out many of these practices. So one place we see it is colophones. So colophones will sometimes describe the procedures that the copyist went through. And we have cases of this from Korea and from um, China, all from, you know, like the seventh, eighth centuries. Second thing we have that's particularly fortunate for Japan is this corpus of documents known as the Shosuin um, documents. These are 10,000 documents and they're primarily bureaucratic record keeping from a scriptorium in Japan. It covers about a 50 year period of 10,000 documents outlining the day-to-day activities. I mean, these are things like laundry records, food orders. But through that, we can document that people were wearing these things called joe. We can look, for example, something I look at in my book is when they're building a sutra copying hall, there was a delay in building the bath. And because the bath got delayed, we can actually track to the day that they had to delay the start of sutra copying until they could get like the proper nails to build a bathtub or something like that, right? They needed all the raw materials. And so when you put that all together, you can really see that people were in many cases, now I wouldn't say all cases, doing some of the activities that I've outlined so far. Amazing. So let's turn to some of the most famous texts we know of. The most famous early texts from Japan are the Kojiki or An Account of Ancient Matters and the Nihon Shoki or Japanese Chronicles. These two texts were supposedly produced in the early 8th century and claimed to lay out the founding legends around the Japanese archipelago, the kami or gods, and the Japanese imperial line. Clearly these topics mix the mythical, that is the kami, with the historical, the imperial family. So how literally would these have been read in the 8th century and how literally should we read them now? Those are great questions. And so let me start with how they would have been read in the 8th century. That's in some ways a really easy answer because I could just say we, we, we don't really know if they were read literally and I could I could <laughs> there. But let me let me try to say a little bit more. So the, there are two texts that you mentioned, and these are the most famous texts for Japanese myths. They're they're wonderful texts. I teach an undergraduate seminar that I just finished where we read these very closely, as well as later adaptations. And the Kojiki was produced in 712. And it honestly seems to have not been read a lot until around the 18th century when it gets rediscovered. There are occasional mentions to it, but primarily people were getting their mythology from the Nihon Shokia text that was from 720. And here though, I think still, at least in the eighth century, a lot of the attention to this text was probably relatively limited to the court. Like, I don't think we can assume that, you know, someone out in Northeastern Japan was, you know, reading the Nihon Shoki for, for pleasure or anything like that. And I should also say that these two texts Although they tell kind of similar stories, they're actually really different. And scholars like Kolnoshi have argued that we need to kind of treat them as, as two separate um, mythologies rather than a single mythology. So that's, that's all a preface. So what do we know about the Nihon Shoki reception in the 8th century? And I'll, I'll extend it into the 9th century just to give me a little, little bit more to work with. Nihon Shoki lectures were performed regularly at the court. 
So Matthew Felt has a really great dissertation on the reception of the Nihon Shoki that has a chapter on these um, on these court lectures. It seems like maybe the first lecture was 721. So a year after the Nihon Shoki was done, they started immediately lecturing on the text. This seems plausible, but there is some debate among scholars about whether this really happened or not. But by the time we get into the ninth century, we start to have regular records of scholars kind of engaging with the Nihon Shoki, studying the text and lecturing on it at the court. And these were big kind of events with banquets. I and mean, if we want to think of a, you know, if you have a big famous keynote speaker come to a university or something like that, uh, and you have a big banquet for him, it's something, something similar. So this tells us that people studied the text quite seriously as scholars and readers. And I think that's the most we can really know about the eighth and ninth century reception on it on a kind of concrete level. But if you ask me to speculate a little bit, I mean, you, you asked how literally would they have been read? And I would say it's, it's a little bit complicated here, but I think in general, we should assume they were read quite literally, right? I don't think we should assume that people had some sort of like secular critique that tried to discount the gods and say that these gods aren't real until much later in Japanese history. But at sure. the same time, I, I would want to point out that I, I don't think there's like a fundamentalism with how they treated these texts. And by that, I mean, they didn't treat the Nihon Shoki, readers of the Nihon Shoki did not treat the Nihon Shoki as the single authoritative version of the text. So the Nihon Shoki itself, for example, famously includes a lot of different variants. So the Nihon Shoki, when you're reading, it's very hard to read because they'll start to tell a story. Then it'll pause and they'll say, there's another version of the story that says this. And then there's another that says, it's sometimes listing you know, seven or so different versions. And so the Nihon Shoki itself actually resists kind of a fundamentalist reading. But if we look at other texts from pre-modern Japan, so an early text known as the Kogo Shui um, seems to have been written by a family of the Inde trying to assert their own myths and saying, no, no, you got some of the stuff wrong. Like you kind of undervalued us. Here's another way to tell these stories. And when we get to the medieval period, we have this whole kind of new form of literature called Chusei Shinwa or medieval mythology that emerges that really tries to combine Buddhism and these myths. So people were taking these texts very seriously, but they also felt really free to invent, to challenge, to disagree, to creatively reinterpret, promote alternatives. And so, you know, I think people took them seriously, but they didn't feel like that was the only version of the text that, that could exist. In, in other words, it was, they were kind of a living tradition, more than a closed canon. I hope that answers your question a little bit. It does, brilliant, thank you. Yes, reading around the Nihon Shoki, and uh, it, it seems that a lot of powerful families in Japan, as we go through the centuries, would often try and revise the text, or they try and write their own family into history to make them appear to be the ones closer to imperial authority. So given that there's been all this revisionism, do we have one authoritative version of the Nihon Shoki, or are there numerous versions? What's the situation like? Yeah, as I understand it, the Nihon Shoki has to get kind of pieced together by a number of different manuscripts, and they, they date to different periods. But the Nihon Shoki as a text, as I understand it, is, is relatively stable. Now, there are different forms where how people kind of include and record the variants. But as scholars, I think we can say with some degree of certainty what the Nihon Shoki likely looked like in, in 720. Now, we don't have the actual manuscripts from 720, but we do have Heian period manuscripts that um, get pieced together to reproduce this text. So as 21st century scholars, I think we can say what the text looked like. But then what did the text mean and how was it understood and used is much harder. But I, I think most people would agree that the Nihon Shoki is trying to promote 
a certain vision that is centered on the justifying the position of the ruler. And the Kojiki and Nihon Shoki do that in really different ways. So the Nihon Shoki incorporates famously a lot of Chinese ideas about yin and yang. And so for the Nihon Shoki kind of rule of the, what we often call the emperor, or some people would call the heavenly sovereign, that person's rule was kind of justified by the very structure of yin and yang forces in the universe. And it's making a, I would argue, kind of a more of a universalist claim cosmologically. And the Kojiki, on the other hand, is tied much more, in my view, to things like divination, to things like particular ritual responsibilities of families. Now, we do see this in both texts, but as 21st century readers, I think there are ways we can trust what's in the text to some degree and kind of try to uncover how they may have been read and understood in the, in the 8th century, although it's, it's obviously always going to be a somewhat speculative endeavor. Fascinating. So uh, the Prince Regent Shotokateishi, who brought Buddhism to Japan, features prominently in the Nihon Shoki and presents an excellent example of myth blended with historical figures. Scholars such as Michael Como have noted that there have been few attempts to separate the man from the myth within Japanese scholarship today. Such myths include that he could speak the moment he was born, he could levitate, and that he flew up to the peak of Mount Fuji on horseback. However, there are more tangible examples of his existence, such as the temple Hōryūji, which he is accredited with erecting. How can we determine what is historical fact and what is embellished myth from a text like the Nihon Choki? Yeah, it's it's a, a really hard problem. And just in the most general sense, I mean, scholars typically say the later you get in the Nihon Choki, the more trustworthy it is. And I think that's that's probably relatively fair. There are creative ways people can combine archaeological evidence and the text of the Nihon Shoki to try to kind of uncover what was really happening. But my own take, and I'll expand on this in a minute, is that we're probably better off treating the Nihon Shoki mostly as narrative, as a story about the past that reflects late 7th and 8th century concerns, rather than as a record of things that actually happened. So like I said, there are there are some methods that, that can be helpful to get to get back at earlier periods, but for the most part, we don't have much writing in Japan that's extended that predates the Kojiki and Nihon Shoki. So we have pieces of wood with writing on them, but that tends to be relatively short. There's, I'll talk about in a minute, there are some sutra commentaries that might be early, there are inscriptions on statues, but there's nothing to the extent of the Kojiki or Nihon Shoki in terms of an extended narrative. And so for that reason, it's, it's a real challenge, I think, to kind of try to compare it with other things, although we can, we can get small points. So Prince Shotoku, he's, he's a difficult figure. In some ways, he's kind of considered a founding father of Japan. He lived from 574 to 622 is what people say. But again, everything's kind of shrouded in mystery. I mean, he's credited with all sorts of things, right? He, he's credited with writing what is kind of referred to. Not, it's not a great translation, probably, but as the first constitution of Japan. He's credited with lecturing and commenting on Buddhist scriptures, and then all of these kind of miraculous occurrences that, that you mentioned in your question. But it's really hard for these reasons I've outlined of, of a lack of earlier text to separate kind of fact from fiction. So there's been a lot of debate about this in Japanese scholarship. So most famously, a scholar named Oyama Seichi advanced a thesis that kind of gets translated as the thesis that Prince Shotoku didn't exist. Now, that's probably a bit of an overstatement. His actual argument is that surely there was some figure known as Prince Umayado, which is another name for Prince Shotoku. But we basically can't really know much about him. There's like just a few basic pieces of information we might be able to get. For the most part, we should treat kind of 
the things we know about him as legend that are reflecting, again, late 7th and 8th century concerns. I should note there's been some pushback in Japanese scholarship recently in the last, like, you know, three or four years. Um, a scholar named Ishii Kosei has a, has a blog that's incredibly active about Prince Shotoku, and he's published a book and, and a number of articles. And he's a little bit cautious in that he you know, doesn't want to exactly say that these things were done by the prince, but he's basically going in the direction of saying that he's very explicit that he thinks Oyama is a fool. Um, he's incredibly polemical in his, his tone. <laughs> and he argues, for example, that there are three sutra commentaries, three commentaries in Buddhist scripture that are attributed to Prince Shotoku and have widely been, that's widely been rejected. And Ishii says, well, not so fast. He says there are a lot of like non-standard Chinese expressions that suggest a foreign author. And he says, for example, you know, this work doesn't cite that many other texts. So it kind of makes sense that it would be really early on. And so he's tried to kind of use linguistic evidence and philological evidence to argue that these texts could have been produced in, in Japan. Now, I should note that one of these texts has been found in a version um, of this text has been found in a cave in Western China that's 70% identical to the Japanese text. But again, Ishii says, well, yeah, parts of it are identical, but clearly some sections of this seem to have been written by a foreign author. Why couldn't it have been the prince? He's, he's a plausible candidate. I would just respond to that really quickly by saying that I, I think it's really difficult to, to look at the language of a classical language and try to assume ethnicity of the author. That's a, a pretty fraught endeavor that has all sorts of assumptions about what it means to be Chinese and writing in Chinese. And second, I think we have to remember there are no other texts like this to compare it to. So the only three texts we have are these three. There are no other extant commentaries in Japan for another 150 years, roughly. So if these texts were by the prince, they are incredibly precocious. For one, we'd have to ask ourselves, why did somebody do it? And then no one else did it again for so long. And two... <laughs> It's very hard to make a comparative argument for what the linguistics of 7th century, early 7th century Japan would have looked like when there are virtually no other comparable texts. So I'm suspicious of Ishii's claim. So this is an ongoing debate in Japanese scholarship. But I would say for me, there are some useful ways we can get around this. And the, the best if we want to get to the historical aspect of Prince Shotoku is again to turn to material culture to look at art historical objects, inscriptions, images. And here I'd highlight the work of people like Akiko Wally and Shari Pradell, who have written really great books on some early objects associated with the prince. But more than that, I would, I would agree with Michael Como's position, which is regardless of whether there was a real figure of Prince Shotoku or not, the ability to know a lot about him is limited. What we're much better off doing is paying attention to the myths, right? The stories can tell us a lot about about what people were thinking in the eighth century. And in that way, the stories are historical texts. They're just not historical texts about the prince. They're historical texts about the late seventh and early, um, and earlier ongoing eighth century and, and beyond. So, I mean, I would argue that we shouldn't prioritize historical fact over myth. And I would argue that, you know, the kind of the quest for the historical Shotoku, much like the quest for the historical Jesus, isn't necessarily the most interesting question um, we could ask. I see. So, Semi-mythical figures and texts are hardly unique to Japan, as you just referenced with Jesus. One only used to think of King Arthur from the Historia Britonum, or Prester John from the Acts of Thomas, for example, in Europe and Africa. Is there anything we can take from how we study ancient texts in Japan to understanding ancient texts elsewhere in the world? Yeah, I think there definitely are. I, I probably don't have a, a good answer. And I have to confess that you know my knowledge of, of King Arthur is, is kind of limited to like, Disney movie presentations of King Arthur. And so it's, it's hard for me to, you know, say anything. I can't, I, it's not hard for me. It's impossible for me to say anything intelligent about, about those specific 
comparisons and I, and I won't. But what I would say is I think this type of comparative work is, is really important. And I do think my sense is that the Japanese case could tell us really interesting things. So let me just use one example that I, I use in my teaching. Um, so when I teach these myths, we, we read the text really closely first, and then we read some various theorists of myths that have kind of argued for, for different versions of kind of universal projects of what a myth is. And one of the theorists of myth that we read, the one that I find the most attractive is this, this guy named Bruce Lincoln, who taught at the University of Chicago for a long time. And he defines myth very succinctly as ideology and narrative form. And his essential argument is that when we read myths, we should look at the hierarchies that the mythical texts assert and pay attention to who's making these claims and why they're making them. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about Japan is, as I mentioned, the Kojiki and Nihon Shoki are written at almost the exact same time. These projects are going on in parallel. But they, the Kojiki and Nihon Shoki have two radically different kind of ideologies. And moreover, the Nihon Shoki includes all of these variants that also kind of undermine some of the ideologies within the Nihon Shoki. So why is this interesting comparatively? Because I think one of the things it shows us is that the same group of people, the same court, can produce radically different ideologies all at the same time. And so when we want to think, for example, comparatively about how myth might relate to ideology, I think we have to really think about ideologies in the plural. And I think the Japanese case is probably one of the best documented examples for how in a very, very narrow period of time where we can identify the authors, we can see like things that are happening that are so different. And so thinking much more about kind of difference and diversity within myth-making traditions, even created by the same party, is one way I, that seems promising to me. More generally, I would just kind of want to highlight a really great recent article that's been getting a lot of attention by my friends, um, Levy McLaughlin, Julian Thomas, Ike Rods, and Chico Watanabe, who have argued an article that came out in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion on religion in the corporate form. It's a completely different thing than what I'm talking about. But one of the things they argue is that scholars of Japan need to start theorizing from the Japanese case more. And I just want to call on others to do this. So I think the Nihon Shoki and Kojiki are really great sources for doing this. And I expect that people um, smarter than me will be able to do a, a better job than I've, I've just done in this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it definitely seems in trying to understand the historical past through these texts, it's just a, it's simply a case of, uh, if I may make an analogy, of having with the Nihon Shoki and the Kojiki, these two peepholes into this time period. And uh, rather than trying to pull out an absolute truth panorama of the past, you know, we have to acknowledge what the blind spots are. And it's just it's more a matter of saying what was and what wasn't. It seems to be more like what seems credible and what doesn't seem credible. Would that be a correct summary, do you think? Yes, I think absolutely. I, I, I think that the image of peepholes does seem, seem promising. I would say, I mean, there are ways we can piece together, right? Because we're not we have a lot of other sources in addition to the Kojiki and the Nihon Shoki that um, are more transparent archeological sources and things like that. So there are ways to, to make lots of holes that we can get a better, a better vantage point. Um, but I do think it's really important to remember the limits of our perspectives and the limits of our sources and what those sources can and can't tell us. And I think this is one of the things that's frustrating to go back to my earlier um, discussion about the narratives I'm rejecting in the field of the state Buddhism model is people historically, have used court chronicles. So the, the Nihon Shoki and the Shoku Nihongi to look at Buddhism in the ancient period and they say, aha, it's only tied to the state. But it's like, well, you're only looking at sources that were produced by the state. And what if we looked at other sources, right? And so I think being aware of who produced your sources and not trying to draw a grand conclusion that all of Buddhism in the Nara period can be reduced to state Buddhism because the Shoku Nihongi makes it look that way. Um, 
in the Shokuni Hongi as an eighth century court chronicle, I, I think that's a mistake, right? To, to try to draw that conclusion from that body of, of literature. So I think that the people model is a useful one. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for answering my questions, Ryan. It's been a real pleasure. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects are currently working on? Yeah, I'm actually really excited. I'm, I'm working on another book and I just got, or I got a grant to um, be on leave next year to work on the book full time. So I'm really hoping to, to make a lot of progress on it and get it out pretty soon. But the book is called How Buddhism Spread in Ancient Japan, Mobility and the Message. That's my tentative title now. And the project focuses on provincial preaching in the early ninth century. And it also incorporates a lot of archaeological evidence to kind of chart the spread of Buddhism to the provinces over the course of basically from the late seventh through ninth centuries when temples basically increase a thousandfold in Japan. And so in my first book, one of the things I tried to demonstrate is that Buddhism had spread widely, that we see sutra manuscripts all throughout Japan, that we see um, provincial patrons pooling their resources together to copy sutras. But I didn't really explain how Buddhism spread. And so in this project, I'm looking a lot at, at one, infrastructure and kind of the consequences of infrastructure for the spread of Buddhism, and two, particularly the actions of preachers. So there's a collection of notes by a ninth century preacher that records, they kind of look like my lecture notes. They're just kind of jottings of topics he'll talk about, little short scripts he'll use in his preaching. And um, so I'm using that to kind of try to reconstruct how Buddhism might have been experienced and why it might have been attractive to people in the provinces in in the um, late eighth and early ninth centuries. Exciting stuff. We'll all be looking forward to that. Thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You can find a link to Brian's research profile in the description below. Next week, we'll be taking Beyond Japan back to the modern day as we are joined by Professor David Slater of Sophia University in Tokyo to discuss Article 9 and youth politics. Following Japan's defeat in the Asia-Pacific War and the dismantling of its empire, occupying US forces put a clause in their revised constitution that forbade Japan from engaging in war or having a standing army. This clause, otherwise known as Article 9, has been the subject of much public debate in recent years, as government leaders such as former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe have sought to revise it, inciting political action from youth activists seeking to keep Japan out of warfare. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.